Welcome to the 54th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Thomas H. Cook, Edgar Award-winning mystery author and author of many novels, including Red Leaves, Master of the Delta, and The Last Talk with Lola Fay. Good. Well, welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. Today, my guest is Thomas H. Cook, the author of many acclaimed and well-reviewed mystery novels. Cook's 1996 novel, The Chatham School Affair, won an Edgar Award from the Mystery Writers of America. Cook's latest novel is The Quest for Anna Klein. Thomas, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Anyway, we can jump into this. I was just going to mention to you, I think we have... uh, a little bit of a shared background. I grew up in Macon, Georgia, and I keep moving further and further north. Uh, I, I live in Western Massachusetts. Yeah, um, I mean, there was this uh, there's this book that William Morris wrote called North Toward Toward Home, and if, if, and from Mississippi, you know, from Yazoo, Mississippi, and uh, that's very much the very much the way I felt. As, as a matter of fact, I I mentioned that book uh, a few weeks ago when I was at the Boston Public Library for the, you know, they sort of tapped for the literary lights, and I told that that very lovely crowd, you know, how how very much at home I had always felt in the North, and I moved to to New York City in uh, 1969, and I just bought a one-way ticket to New York on a plane. I had no, I didn't know a single person there, but I just had a desperate need to. To live there, and uh, 1969 was not exactly a, a popular time to be a Southerner. That was when all of the civil rights movement was going on and all that. And I found the people of New York just unbelievably welcoming. What they expect you to do is work hard, but they didn't hold uh, they didn't hold my being Southern against me. Yeah, that was certainly my experience because I actually lived in in New York as well. I, I lived in New York for about nine years and. And I, I kind of jokingly told people that, that, you know, to my parents' dismay, I keep moving further and further north. But but I, that was my experience, too. I, I literally, and I tell the story, and people <laughs> people can't believe it, but I had never stepped foot in New York City until I drove through the tunnel in a moving van. <laughs> did you at least have an apartment? Um, I did have an apartment. Uh, actually not collected them, but I mean, there have been many uh, I come to New York stories over the years, and I was at the Authors Guild uh, benefit one night in New York City, and I was seated with a with a fellow, and uh, he, I think, was from North Carolina, and uh, we were beginning to share each other's New York stories, New York uh, stories, and he said he became such an absolute irritant to his parents always talking about New York and how he wanted to go to New York. He said one day his father just grabbed him by the shirt and more or less tossed him into the truck with a, with a cardboard sign that says, take this boy to New York and left him on the highway. <laughs> and that's how he finally did get there with a suitcase. And, and that was it. But I, I remember I didn't have any money. I'd sold my car, which is what I always say is a, the ultimate way a southern boy burns his bridge behind him, you know. And, uh, and, I, and, with, that, and with that money, I bought that ticket. I still remember the price. It was $79 one way. And um, got off the plane, and um, I went to a taxi and said, just take me to a cheap hotel. 
and the taxi driver took me to a hotel called the Dixie, right on 42nd Street. <laughs> and as, and as, uh, as Pip says in Dickens, you know, and, and from there I made my way into the world. I misquoted. I think it's David Copperfield who says that, who says that. So let me quickly change that. Sure, sure. Well, if someone hasn't heard yet about your new novel, The Quest for Anna Klein, can you give them a sense or an idea of what the book is about and what they can expect? Yeah, and it's a it's a big difference for me. A uh, big difference for me. I don't usually uh, write standard mysteries. I don't write shoot 'em ups, and I don't write cozies, and I don't have cats or petunias or anything like that in my book. But I'd also never written uh, a novel that really had a lot of sweep in terms of uh, time uh, and geography. My books have a tendency to center on family crises of one kind or another, and they're often in small towns, although I've written a couple of books that take place in New York. But this one has a tremendous sweep, I think, and it really has somewhat to do with 9-11. What happens is that uh, in December of uh, 2011, uh, 2001, just a few months after the attack, uh, a young uh, think tank expert in uh, Washington uh, comes to interview an old man who has written him to say that in the current crisis, he might have something useful that might be useful to the current situation. And then begins to unfold a tale that begins in 1939 about a plot that was supposed to change the world. And from there, the story unfolds in the sense that he is, uh, he is asked to give his uh, Connecticut home up to the training of a brilliant young woman named Anna Klein. During the course of the novel, he decides to go with her to Europe to carry out this plot. During the carrying out of the plot, their cyanide um, tablets are exchanged, and she is captured and he is captured. And so in order not to betray her, because he's afraid that he will under torture, he takes her cyanide and it doesn't work. So he knows that was a false cyanide that she was given. And so from then on, he, he seeks to find her, and that takes him really throughout the world. And, and I know that a lot of authors don't like the, the question of where you get your ideas, but I'm curious, given uh, what, you, what you talked about in terms of the, the, the storyline from the 1930s and also um, tying it into September 11th, do you have a sense or remember of, of how the, the idea in terms of the, the, the basic kind of background or mechanics of the, the plot came to you? With Anna Klein, I don't actually remember uh, what caused me to do that, although it just felt really comfortable to do something entirely different and on a much larger scale, and it moves uh, a little faster than uh, some of my other novels do. At other times, though, I have a very vivid memory of what, what caused it. I, I know that we were, my wife and I, uh, live part-time on Cape Cod, and uh, well, more, more, than, more often than not on Cape Cod, but we also have a place in New York City. But we will go down to New York, and on the Connecticut Thruway, you, you get off on the, at a McDonald's, and we were getting off from McDonald's one day, and my wife just looked over at a road sign and said, look at that, that'll interest you. And the road sign said, Breakheart Hill. And I know I remember having very much of that book in my head by the time we got to New York, about an hour and a half, two hours later. It, it, those words had just completely triggered something. In another one, I was in the Metropolitan, uh, I was in the MoMA, actually. No, actually, I was in the Metropolitan Museum, the, uh, Metropolitan Museum and not the, not the modern art. And I saw, um, I saw a painting um, 
and it was it just absolutely uh, absolutely a novel came right out of it. Uh, and I have no explanation for that whatsoever. It's just uh, it just happens. But now when I'm at a loss for what to write, I'll often go to an art museum and look at paintings and see if anything really really inspires me. As you mentioned earlier, you've published many mystery novels. What what appeals to you about kind of the mystery form? The mystery form doesn't really appeal to me very much at all. Uh, I don't, uh, for the most part, read uh, what are classically called mysteries. I don't read cozies uh, normally. Um, But I do like to write about people in crisis. And uh, usually some sort of crime uh, is always about people in crisis, you know, causes a crisis. Uh, but my books are really about moral crisis more than physical crisis. There's usually, you know, nobody's chasing anybody down a black, uh, down a dark alley, or, or you know, there's no gunfire really. As I always say, when I write about sex, the camera lifts toward the trees, so there's not a lot of that. Uh, it's, uh, it really is uh, usually very intense uh, uh, moral dramas that I write about. And I'm not so sure they would always be classified as mysteries had I not uh, been nominated for uh, an Edgar Award first time out. The very first book I wrote uh, was nominated for an Edgar. And after that, uh, and it was very much a mystery. Let's not not, uh, quibble about that. It was very much a mystery. I didn't know that, but uh, once I began to read mysteries, I thought, oh, yeah, that book was very much a a neat little police procedural. But I had never read a police procedural, and so now I say that I invented the form. <laughs> but, uh, but in fact, uh, it follows pretty much the way uh, a police procedural would work. And so anyway, that was nominated for an Edgar, and though, even though my next novel was not a mystery, and the novel uh, directly, one, one after that was, and the next one was not, uh, you, were pretty much, uh, you were pretty much a mystery novelist after that. And certainly I have written uh, quite a few books that are absolutely mysteries detective novels and that sort of thing and 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 i i know from from reading your novels that 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 you you spend a lot of um of time in terms of the characterization and much more depth and, and exploration than than as you've as you've outlined a typical mystery is why, why do you think m- more authors in the the typical mystery genre don't don't follow your path to kind of exploring the deep emotional impact around a crime well uh, you know let's face it they don't sell as well um, to write uh, with more character and more atmosphere and more depth um, has a tendency to slow the novel down it, it it's not a uh, you know, it's it's not gunplay and uh, all you know a twist around every corner. And the fact of the matter is that uh, books that do move at a much quicker pace, even though they're they're not necessarily about anything, um, they they do they do have a tendency to, to to do better. I wish that I wish that weren't the case. I wish that you could you could sell lots and lots of books um, with with added character and atmosphere. But the fact of the matter is, it's it's just not it's just not so. The 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 mystery reading community is uh, is highly demarcated in in my view. I mean, there are people who like what I do, and then there are people who like, and and they would not necessarily read, say, a cozy. That's not that's not completely true, but it's it certainly comes close to being true. And so people who read cozies usually don't read uh, PI novels or they don't read uh, techno thrillers. 
And so that that audience is is highly defined. And when you don't write, when you write a series of standalones, as I have for the last 25 years, um, it's very difficult to have an audience because you don't have a continuing character, uh, you don't have one continuing location. And people, I think, uh, readers by and large, uh, like the familiarity of having a, a character that, uh, that uh, whom they have come to know and in, who, in whose life they're involved. And when you do a series of books, all of which are quite different, it, uh, it, I always say I put a bullet in the head of my audience every time I write a new book. But, but obviously, for, for you as a writer, that, that, uh, you know, that path that, that you've taken is one that, that interests you versus, <coughs> excuse me, versus writing a uh, series mystery where you do come back to a familiar group of people or, or setting. Um, that's true, and for me, for me, I mean, I did write a series. I mean, I wanted to to be uh, successful and to make a living as, as a writer, and so I tried that uh, that that form. I wrote three novels about the same character, in, in more or less the same setting. And the last two were New York City, and then the first one he moved to New York City. So that's that. You know, New York City really is is the uh, is the locale. Uh, but, but when I got to, when I finished the third book, I said to my wife, "If I ever write a book worse than this, I'm going to stop." And because I just didn't like it, I felt as though I had lost the energy for it, um, and just simply didn't want to do it anymore. Now that said, I have many friends who write series characters, and they bring a freshness to it every time. They like they like being with those characters. They know their readers like being with those characters, and I'm really quick to say, and I do mean this sincerely. Uh, that's very much to their credit. I mean, that's and it's very much to the to the entertainment of their readers, and uh, and they they really like it, and that's what they do. Uh, you know, writers shouldn't be the same. We really do need plenty of plenty of different flavors in the ice cream store and in the bookstore too. You mentioned earlier about your your first novel that you you felt was kind of characterized and uh, as a police procedural and it was nominated for an Edgar Award and you said that at that time you had not read much in the mystery genre. What 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 type of literature and books were you reading when you when you started writing that first novel? Well, I grew up in the Southern uh, school system. Um, I graduated high school in 1965 and. Um, the Southern public school system, as I'm sure you know, you're a Southern boy too, um, they did not give a nod to modernity. They were not interested in popular literature. They never assigned it. Uh, they, we read nothing but the classics. We read Dickens, uh, we read Shakespeare, and we read pretty much nothing else. So we read some Hemingway and some Faulkner and some, some Fitzgerald. Of course, that, that, Throw in some James Fenimore Cooper, who's just unreadable as far as I <laughs> as far as I could I could tell. I mean, but we read you know things like Moby Dick as well, and uh, so that's what I read. That's what I grew up reading, which was a you know now sort of thought of as serious you know ser- serious literature. But from that, I I got a sense of 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 a, of the deep uh, character. And uh, and then when I went on in college, we mostly read um, uh, Conrad, for example, and then on to the Russian authors, uh, you know Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, those kinds of those kinds of writers. And so I got a I, I got I got I I was brought up on just sort of classic, uh, you know, so-called great literature, and I really sort of never really lost a taste for it. So that's that tends to be what I. 
what I read, which is now we think of as uh, something called mainstream fiction. But I also read a lot of nonfiction. I'm doing a, a travel book on, on uh, traveling to the saddest places on Earth and writing about the value of visiting these places. And because of that, I've also been reading a lot of, uh, a lot of nonfiction in order to research the places before I go there. And what are some of the places that you're, that you're visiting for that book that you're writing? Well, I'm going to the Door of No Return uh, next October, but in, uh, in recent, uh, the recent couple of years during which I'm, do I'm doing this for my British publisher, and in the recent couple of years, I've gone to Hiroshima and uh, to Nagasaki, to the, um, to the leper colony on, uh, of Kalapalpa, which Robert Louis Stevenson called the saddest place on earth. Uh, we've gone to Verdun. I went to the uh, castle ruin of the world's uh, first serial killer, Gilles Liray, in uh, Machecoul, um, France. Uh, Nuachota in Georgia, which is where the Trail of Tears began. Those kinds of places. When you when you wrote that uh, first book, if I'm not mistaken, you you at the time were. Uh, the book reviewer in, in teaching English in Atlanta, or you were the book reviewer for Atlanta Magazine and you were teaching English, is that correct? That's right. I was an adjunct teacher, uh, which means you had no benefits and hardly any salary. <laughs> but uh, and you'd be teaching, you know, I, um, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. It was uh, pretty much they were adults, and so they were people who really loved loved the fact that they were in college and were really there. Uh, trying to learn. So yes, that's right. I was do I was the book reviewer for Atlanta Magazine. And in little bio after bio, they say I was a book reviewer for Atlantic Magazine. And that was never the case. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> Atlanta. <laughs> and so so what was the process like for you when you wrote that first novel? Had you had you tried to write a novel before? No, I hadn't. Uh, I suppose some part of me always wanted to, wanted to write uh, novels, but I had never really seriously considered it as a uh, as a career. I was uh, continuing graduate school. I ended up at Columbia University in New York, and after completing my uh, my PhD orals, I went down to Atlanta to Atlanta as my base because I'd lived there before, and in fact, graduated undergraduate school there. And so um, that that was a place I knew, and I thought I could get work and maybe some 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 teaching. And but I was going to do a biography of a of the khaki governor of Alabama, um, uh, Big Jim Folsom, for my PhD dissertation. And uh, what happened really was that I got a I got a job at Coca Cola. I was a temp, a temp. And uh, it wasn't really at Coca-Cola, but the temp service sent me over to Coca-Cola, and I arrived there, I think, pretty much the day that uh, saccharin was declared to be a carcinogen. And so they were making a lot of money with a drink called uh, Tab, and they were very upset by this, by this fact, and, uh, and it was going to really hurt their, hurt their sales. And so I got there that morning, and they put me in a room. Uh, with a Selectric typewriter, which was the top of technology at that time, with a little correctable uh, tape on it, and uh, next to a phone. And um, I sat there for a while. No one ever uh, gave me anything to do. So I took a sheet of paper, and I started a novel. And after that, I looked busy. And so that phone never rang, and, uh, and no one ever gave me anything to do for the next six weeks. And so I wrote this book, and that's a true story. That's that's a great story. 
I actually had some temp jobs where I sat and wrote short stories myself, so I can I yep. can totally relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, what was the? Do you remember what the process was like for you in terms of getting that novel published? Did you have um, trouble finding an agent, or or was it you know uh, an easy process for you? Well, it was an unusual process because I didn't have an agent and I didn't know anybody uh, who had an agent. I didn't know any other writers at all. Uh, I knew one uh, person who was the girlfriend of a friend of mine at Columbia. And out of college, she had gotten a uh, a job at Playboy Press, uh, pretty low on the, on the editorial level. But I knew that uh, she would read it. And so I sent it to her, and she did read it, and she liked it, and she gave it to the next editor up, and that editor liked it. And uh, so it, it was without being agented. Now, this I have to say, this would not happen today, because they do not read uh, unsolicited manuscripts anymore. Uh, so this story, when I, particularly when I tell it to young, aspiring writers, I tell them, this is not going to happen to you. This was a this was a tremendous amount of luck, and it would not happen today. But uh, she read it and gave it to the second editor. The second editor liked it, and so I was feeling pretty good about that. And then she gave it to the third editor, who was the highest on the totem pole, and he didn't like it. And so she she wrote she called and said, "Well, I you know I'm sorry. It's, I'm sure this is going to be disappointed, but David, his name was David, did not did not like it." And so at that point, I thought it was dead. And then she, she went out, a few weeks later, she went out to dinner with the head of the company and his wife. And she was sitting next to the wife of the, of the head of the company and said, um, and, she, and the wife said, oh, what have you been, have you read anything interesting lately? And she said, yeah, I, I sort of like this little book that, uh, by this kid from Alabama. And I liked it and another editor liked it. And she said, but this, but David didn't like it. And, uh, uh what Nancy quoted was that she says, well, I'm not, I'm not, crazy about David so let me see the uh, <laughs> let me see the book and so she she read it and she liked it and she gave it to her husband who liked it and then the book was published and I'm quick to say that uh, that once that book went into into process this particular editor David uh, uh, did come to like it and and wrote me a lovely letter and and was very supportive of the book so he was the kind of person that you know that could change his opinion of a book, and I really appreciated that. And later, when I met the woman who had done this, I so I so thanked her, you know, for taking the time to read that book because I'm not sure I would have written another book if that had been turned out. I I wasn't I didn't have that particular kind of fire in 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 my belly. I thought that I would probably end up teaching somewhere, that, but that, not be a writer. That, that's interesting that you say that because in preparation for this interview, I um. I looked at some other interviews and did some research, and I, I was reading an interview with you where you explained to the interviewer that oftentimes, in terms of your writing process now, you usually start a book within a few days or a week or two of finishing another book. Is, is, yeah. is that the case? Yeah, it is. Uh, really, up until right now, I'm finishing up a book right now. I, I mean, literally finishing up. I'm in the last stages of the final edit. And for the first time in my life, and maybe that's because I'm a, I'm a, a man of a certain age, but for the first time, I'm not sure what I'm going to write next. But that's, uh, to my knowledge, that's the first time that's ever happened. 
I usually I usually know. And I think part of the reason for that is because I keep wanting to do something even more different now. And if you were just going to do the same, just do an, another intense sort of moral drama, then they come around all the time. And I have many ideas for books like that. But I just want to do... I want. I just want to do something, something bigger, and something, something that that can breathe more deeply. And I'm not sure what that is. I am extremely proud of Anna Klein, and and I was very affected by it because it, it had all that, and uh, and I liked all that, and uh, you know the history and the movement and the sweep and the sense of an historical moment that is in itself really critical and when people are tested. And I loved it. And I, I would love to find another story that would allow me to do that without it being the same story. Right, right. And, and so going back a, a moment to where you said basically if Playboy Press had not published that first novel that you would probably not have written another one, have you thought about what takes you from... from from that, uh, for the lack of a better word, a little bit of, of ambivalence, I guess, to to uh, a point in your life where the ideas, you know, just come so frequently that you can go from one book to another. Well, uh, I know that when when that book was published, uh, your life rather changes in the sense that what had seemed like an extremely distant prospect uh, is not anywhere near so distant anymore. For example, on the basis of having written that book, I got a wonderful uh, New York agent uh, who was who was sup- very supportive of my career for many, many, many years. Uh, very prestigious agent. Uh, I got noticed in a way that I'd never been noticed before by other publishers, and so I was able to move from Playboy Press, where I had a very bad experience publishing that book, or a- everything that happened after it was. Um, it was everything that happened after I after it was uh, chosen to be published was bad. Everything before that was good, but everything after that was bad. So that I remember that what Mark uh, I think I've forgotten what he, he wrote. Um, Mark Connolly is it or he? But he said one time that um, that uh, writing a book in America is a miserable experience, and uh, it certainly was for me uh, in that book. But then Houghton Mifflin picked up the second book. Uh, which was a literary novel, and that was a wonderful experience. Uh, and it was with them for the next uh, for the next three books. And so, at that point, you just become you become you become a writer in a way. That's how you make your living. Even though I was, uh, I imagine I was forty before, uh, and I published my first book, which I think was twenty eight or twenty nine. But I was forty years old before I was able to make a living, really make a living. You know, without anything else. Yeah. And 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 what has what has your kind of I know it's kind of hard to uh, encapsulate in, in a few sentences, but but what what has your experience been? I mean, because you know there are a lot of writers who published, um, you know, when your first book was published, who who certainly have not had the career that you had. What what has been your experience along the way of of staying published? And, and continuing to, to write and, and have new books published? Well, um, 
I left Houghton Mifflin of my own free will. I left Putnam after that of my own free will. Uh, I went to Bantam, and and I left Bantam not of my own free will. And at that point, I honestly thought my career was over. But uh, because publishing had changed so much, and although I had written a great many books, that was not working for me because none of those books had ever really been, been big hits. And they were, by that time, publishing had changed enough to where publishers were, publishing as a business. And so they were after books uh, by either young people who they, whom they thought could write you know, a hit for them or, or someone who had, who had been doing it for a long time. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't in that category. And so actually the fact that I had written a great many books was working against me rather than for me. But Otto Pinsler, uh, my dear friend and and savior, actually um, had made a deal with Houghton Mifflin to have his own imprimatur, and so he brought me over over to Houghton Mifflin, and that became a real spur to my career. I wrote a book called Red Leaves that that did um, very 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 well. I've just sold uh, the option to that to um, uh, Jean Pierre Junet, who Junet who wrote who did Amelie and a very long engagement. So that book has had a really, really great life, and it gave my career a completely new boost. And but, but that said, I think that writers coming into the business today are not going to have long careers. The vast majority will not. I've actually writ- I've written a piece about that on musings and meanderings that I think appears on the 11th about how we may be on the verge of no longer having a mature literature because they they get rid of writers too quickly, that you're not going to have older writers. Um, You know, know, if you read uh, This Side of Paradise, Fitzgerald's first novel, and you read Great Gatsby, Great Gatsby is a lot better. And if you don't don't allow a, a writer to mature, uh, to to learn his craft or her, her craft and to really change his his or her themes as he moves through time, then you're just simply you're you're not going to have a mature literature. When you, when you are talking to uh, aspiring writers, what tips or advice uh, do you give them if if they are interested in in trying to get their work published, whether it's short stories or novels? Well, sadly, I think a lot of the advice has has a tendency to be business advice, and 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 none of it is very is very help, very good in the sense of the news that it brings to the to the aspiring young writer. Uh, it's a, it's extremely difficult to get an agent, and they now have a whole tier of age of people you hire to get you agents, agents to get you an agent. So there's another whole new tier of that. That this is this is a genuine. Problem because in fact uh, you do need an agent and you probably won't get published without one. Uh, you might be able to publish short stories without an agent and maybe they'll be seen by an agent who will pick you up uh, on that basis. It's possible, I suppose, that an edit- editor could do the same, but uh, probably less likely. Uh, so that is important to know. But you don't need to focus so much on getting an agent that you forget that you really need to write a good book. And I honestly, I honestly do think, although you know there's an enormous amount of trash out there, that editors do seek 
um, from time to time, and maybe a lot of the time, a, a good book, and to try to write, um, to try to write a good book, um, and it, and for it to be heartfelt. Well, many writers are also devoted readers as well. Are there any recent novels or nonfiction books that you've read that you would that impressed you and that that left that you would recommend? Well, yeah, I I, I liked uh, very much The House of Sand and Fog, uh, Andre de Bus the Third's book, um, which I recently read. Um, I liked Leopold's Ghost as a history, uh, the story of the of the Congo. Um, those I thought were very, very well written uh, books. One fiction, uh, one non fiction. Um, again, those are serious novels. I generally will read anything that Robert Stone writes. Uh, sometimes I like it, sometimes I don't. But he's a serious writer, and I like I like to know what he has to say. Um, uh, let's see. I've been reading so much uh so much uh nonfiction recently that I haven't written actually haven't read uh a novel in a while, although I also like Olive Kitteridge, uh which is really a sort of a series of connected of uh connected stories. Well, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you'd want to, to mention? Uh well certainly I want to plug my book. <laughs> And and to say that I honestly think that uh, the quest for Anna Klein, uh, you know, could have a very could have a very wide audience, wider than the audience that I'm I'm used to, and that I think it is a, a crossover book. I think a person who wants a, a good sort of mainstream novel would enjoy it, and and someone who is interested in uh, in mysteries and espionage would all would enjoy it too. But I think it's a I think it's a rich novel, and I think it's the richest novel I've. Uh, it has it has more riches and more va- it's more varied in its riches than uh, than than my usual novel. It just has more aspects to it. The structure is interesting, I think, and I, I urge people to actually give a new author a chance. It's interesting. I'll tell you this one story. I was coming out of my British publisher, and there near the British Museum right on, you know, near Russell, on Russell Square, and of course that's known for publishers, and I, I I have white hair and a white beard, and I had a book under my arm, so I looked like a writer, and I came out and got in a cab, and so the cab driver, this is in, in London, of course, he says to me, he says, uh, are you a writer? And I said, yeah. And uh, he said, what do you write? And I said, well, it's fiction. And he said, well, what kind of fiction? And I said, uh, well, no, because I need to narrow it down. I said, I I suppose you could classify them in a way as uh, crime writers, crime novels. And uh, he mentioned a very famous uh, female crime writer. And he says, I just bought her sixth book. He said, boy, did the last five suck. (laughs) So, So I was thinking, well, you know, could you please give someone that you've never heard of a chance and uh, and maybe give a guy who writes standalones uh, rather than series books a chance because readers very rarely do. <laughs> that, that's that's a great anecdote. Well, so that uh, would I, be my plea. Okay, well, well, again, the novel is The Quest for Anna Klein. It's available in bookstores now, and so uh, people listening should definitely check it out. And again, we've Thank been you so much. Sure. Again, we've been speaking with Thomas Cook, and uh, where can they find out uh, more information about you online, Thomas? 
Well, I don't have a website. I mean, I I don't have any any moral uh, qualms about them or anything like that. It's just I checked with everybody that I that asked one. It didn't seem to be any particular reason. But uh, really, I mean, you can just pick up uh, various bits of bio here and there, and uh, uh, if that's if that's what you're talking about. But primarily, just to, just to keep posted on book reviews and just do uh, you know on various blogs and uh, and see when a book comes out. Because the the real trouble now is is even letting those people that you know, whom you know would buy your book, just letting them know that it's in the stores. It's extremely difficult. Uh, again, the novel is The Quest for Anna Klein, and Thomas, thanks for doing the interview. Thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed every minute of it. This is Lee Child, and I'm listening to the Reading and Writing Podcast. Thanks for listening to my latest podcast. If you have a chance, please leave a review of the podcast in iTunes. It only takes a moment. Until next time, read some good books and be well. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.